So back in 1972, a book came out called The Stepford Wives. And I don't know if you read the book. I read it in the late 70s. Uh, I think when I was in college, uh, a couple of movies have been made about it. And it's a story where the main character is a, a professional photographer, and she's a young mom, young wife. And she moves, she and her family moves to the town of Stepford, Connecticut. It's a fictional town. And so uh, once she gets there, it, at first it seems pretty idyllic. It seems like everybody's so nice and so welcoming and everything. Um, the guys really take in her husband, the women take her in. But after a while, things start turning a little weird because she starts noticing that the women in the town are weirdly submissive. Um, and so uh, they never, ever contradict their husbands on anything. And so she starts doing a little research in the library. This is 1972. You couldn't do it on your phone. Um, <clears throat> imagine going back in time, picking up a phone off the wall and start doing like this, trying to get to the Internet. Um, so she, uh, she starts doing some research on some of these, some of these ladies and, and discovers that many of them had professional careers, but all of them have quit their jobs. Uh, she discovers that some were feminists, but there's no feminism, uh, uh, feminist ideology coming out of their mouths anymore. And uh, she does some research on some of the husbands, and it turns out, dum dum dum, they were several of them were working on those lifelike robots at uh, at Disney, and uh, which sounds really crazy in 1972 uh, that they could think that anybody could actually create something that seems so real. But she discovers that yes, they are turning their wives into robots. They're getting rid of them and giving a replica uh, who's a robot a, a, and an upgrade. In, in their minds, and, and then she discovers that her husband is in now with them and planning on getting rid of her. All right, so Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, he alludes to this story, and he asks the question, is your God a Stepford God? Is your God a Stepford God? And this is why he asks the question. Um, he says a lot of times our, our beliefs, a lot of the beliefs that we have uh, about life, about God, about how things should work, a lot of times those beliefs go unexamined. We, we just have them. We pick them up in our daily lives from our family of origin, whatever it is, just uh, we put them together from all of that and we have these unexamined beliefs. And then sometimes the Bible comes along and contradicts them, rebuts our cherished but unexamined beliefs. And when that happens, a lot of times, we lose confidence in the Bible. Rather than looking at our beliefs, we lose confidence in the Bible. But he continues, the Bible and God can't contradict you, can't rebut you, can't challenge you, can't make you feel uncomfortable about some of the things that you believe if you're just kind of picking and choosing what you want to believe and what you don't want to believe from the Bible. Well, then what you have is a Stepford God, a God who just agrees with everything that you, that you believe. And so like these um, beautiful women in Stepford who never uh, contradict, who are just completely like, like submissive zombies, uh, your God may be a Stepford God. Now, uh, is it really God? That's his question. The God that you're worshiping that can't contradict you is he really God? Can you have a real relationship with a God who can't question you, who can't disagree with you, can't question your premises, your assumptions uh, about life? And this is what he writes. He says, if your God, 
only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle, as in real friendships and marriage. Will you know that you have gotten, only if that happens, will you know that you have gotten hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination? Now, he goes on in that quote to say, um, an authoritative Bible is really important. A Bible that we don't just, you know, take out the things that we don't like is really important. In fact, it's a precondition to having a real God, not a God of our own making. Now, you can agree with that, what he says there. Uh, you can maybe not totally agree or not sure where, where we're going with this, but you can get the logic of what I'm talking about, and you're still going to struggle with today's passage. Because we're going to be talking about a couple of things. The passage itself is the kind of passage that, that will, for every single one of us, to some degree or another, will question some of our assumptions about God and about life and about what's really important. And, um, and so uh, we're going to look at them in just uh, a moment. The two subjects that it deals with are, are money and God's judgment. And those are... Those are difficult topics to talk about given the assumptions that a lot of us live with because one thing is we're, we're pretty, pretty attached to our money to one degree or another and we are not very friendly towards anything that would suggest that we should possibly part with large sums of it. And we really struggle with the idea of a loving God that is also a God that can execute judgment. Uh, it's, just, it's just a given. It's the question everybody always asks. It's a question that people struggle with when reading uh, the Bible. And, and none of us can not think that way. It's part of the way that we think or because we're, we're, we're part of our world and this is how we think. Now, there's no way to look at those two without God contradicting you. Uh, at Five Oaks, one of the things that we do is we, we're willing to look at these things. We, we want the whole scripture. We want to hear from everything that God has to say in the scriptures. And so that's why we're going to be looking at it, hopefully, allowing God to challenge our assumptions, allowing God to change our, our minds. So what's at stake with this? Why, why is this important? Well, minimally, what's at stake is the genuineness of your faith, the genuineness of your relationship with God. Because if you're, if you're kind of got a made-up God, it's, it's not a very genuine relationship, just like these men with their robot wives. Um, but it's not just about our relationship. If we, um, if, if it also has a ripple effect on other people. Because when we've got kind of a made-up God created in the image of our own brokenness, our sense of what God should be or who God should be, when we have that kind of God, we actually have very little to offer our world, very little hope to actually offer our world. So the question is, will we allow God, as we look at this passage, will we allow God to contradict our ideas, challenge us, even maybe make a struggle, maybe a, a little bit of sense of outrage at what's happening in these passages? All right, so turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, uh, page number of our Bibles is right there. And so there are Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. If you don't have one, if you're using a smartphone or tablet device, we use the NIV the New International Version. We are, we are looking at Acts because we're in this larger series looking through the entire New Testament. And so uh, we spent quite a bit of time the summer and the fall looking at the life of Jesus and the Gospels, and now we're looking at the life uh, of the early church. 
And, uh, and this is the passage that comes up next. It's not every passage we're looking at, but this is the next one in our plan for, for covering this. If you're brand new with us, just want to let you know, hopefully you got a new here green brochure when you came in. On the inside, there is a sermon uh, application guide. It's got a lot of the big ideas from the sermon already in it, so you can review them later if you want to. Uh, also, there's room for you to take notes. Uh, there's discussion questions, uh, which are for the small groups. There are also reflection questions if you're not in a small group. And on the inside, there are uh, family discussion questions, and the kids are not studying this passage today. Normally, we're doing the same thing uh, week after week, but this week and next week, the kids are on a different, a different passage. So <clears throat> uh, you might want to read that passage if you're going to have a discussion about what they learned uh, today. You may not want to bring up this passage uh, unless they're older. All right. So we're going to start with money because that's where the story starts. It starts with money, um, and it does so by giving a summary statement. This is the second one in the book of Acts. So Acts is the second volume written by Luke. Uh, volume one is the life of Jesus, the gospel of Luke. Volume two is the life of the early church and, and the work of the Holy Spirit through the early church. And so a couple of times he pauses at the very beginning with this early young church, and he describes what's happening there. And he does that here in chapter 4, beginning in verse 32, where it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, uh, in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So summary statement, and then gives a positive example. Someone from that community uh, named Barnabas, we learn more about him in the book of Acts, who sold a field and brought it to, to help with needs within the church. Now, what they're practicing here is radical generosity. And I could go into uh, what exactly is going on here, but basically as needs arise, uh, the people are willing to part with their money to, to help each other. It's not, uh, it's not as radical as, you know, it's not like some kind of communist system or something like that. It's certainly not just some kind of, uh, you know, stamp of approval to... Uh, to free enterprise, it's something else. It's how the church is taking care of its own people. But they're practicing radical generosity because they're willing to part with big things in order to make sure that nobody among them doesn't have a roof over the head, doesn't have food, uh, doesn't have clothing. They're taking care of the basics in each other's lives. So they believe that everything belongs to God. That's radical in and of itself. They don't believe that their stuff is ultimately, truly their stuff. It actually belongs to God. And they're willing to part with it if someone needs it. Now, if you look at what's behind this attitude, it's given to us by Luke. Why are they so generous? And it comes partway through verse 33. If you look back at verse 33, it says, and God's grace was so powerfully at work uh, in them that there were no needy persons because of God's grace for they would sell. Okay, so it's saying God's grace was so powerfully at work in them. It was God's grace and it was powerfully at work and it was powerfully at work in them. Okay, God's grace is what's fueling this. It's what's propelling these people to be this way. I've seen it. I've seen it so many times in our own church. I've seen it in many of your lives, how God's grace has propelled you 
to live a, a life of generosity. There's so many stories of giving and sacrificial giving and radical giving that, we, uh, that I've experienced in my tw- almost 22 years here. And so radical generosity is what happens. Luke is saying this. Radical generosity is what happens when God's grace is powerfully at work in us. This is what you expect to see. It's not a testament to the quality of the people of that early church. It's a testament to God. It's a testament to his power, to his grace. And it's the same grace that is available and the same power that's available to every single one of us as we interact with God's grace. So how do we interact with God's grace? How do we, how do we have the grace of God working powerfully within us? Well, the scripture is very clear that Grace is not something that God forces on us, but grace is something that we have to receive. And in order to receive God's grace, we, we have to humble ourselves because grace means, it means God is giving you favor when you actually deserve something bad. You, you, you don't deserve good, you deserve something bad because of your life, because of your choices, because of the way you think, because of all those things, because of how you've treated God. Um, God instead, though, reacts with favor. So that takes a humbling to receive that from God. Um, And then we have to trust God. We have to trust God to receive it. We have to say, I'm going to trust God's uh, version of things over against my version. That's what part of what belief is. We put our faith in Christ means we trust what he's done. We trust what he says about life and ourselves and grace and sin and all those sort of things. To lean in God's grace means also that we don't just receive God's grace once. We have to live in God's grace every single day. We need God's grace and we need it every single day of our lives. We needed it yesterday. We needed it the day we first uh, received Christ as our Savior and Lord and we're forgiven of our sins. We're going to need it the day that we face Christ in the final judgment. We're going to need God's grace then. We never outgrow it. It's not like you you start with grace and then you spiritually grow and at a certain point you can set that aside. That's the elementary stuff. Now it's just effort and trying harder. So giving in response to God's radical grace and love is stronger. It's a stronger motivation than giving as an attempt to earn God's favor and love. Scripture makes that point over and over again. This is what creates this kind of community and kind of giving and generosity that can be sustained. Now, the problem is uh, we're, we're not always very receptive to grace. Really not. Uh, because there is a humbling. There is no receiving grace without a certain amount of humbling. So this week I, uh, I read, uh, for the first time, C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce. And so it's a short book. Uh, and it's also um, a very, uh, uh, an outstanding book. So uh, I, I do recommend it. But it's a story about heaven and hell, a fictional story about heaven and hell. It's not his idea of what heaven and hell are. It's just a way of getting us to think about heaven and hell. And so the way that the story starts is that um, there's a narrator who's telling his story. He's a recent um, resident of hell. And uh, hell, as... Uh, as, as it's being described here, is a, is a place where people uh, isolate themselves from each other. They just want to get farther and farther away from each other because pettiness reigns. And it's like they are petty, the other people are petty, and it just gets deeper and more ingrained. They get smaller and smaller. They keep pushing, 
pushing and they keep moving farther and farther away from each other. It takes a while, but they've got plenty of time for that to happen. They can have anything they want, too. They can, uh, they can conjure just if they want it. They can have a mansion to live in and a you know, fantastic car and everything. The only problem is when it rains, you still, the rain still goes through because there is no substance to all the things that they want. And in fact, they have very little substance. They're like, they're like ghosts. Not total apparitions, not total ghosts, but, but like ghosts. And one day, the narrator, this is right at the beginning of the story, and the narrator boards a bus to the outskirts of heaven. And so he boards the bus with a bunch of other residents of hell. And there they meet several people, a lot of people that they know, uh, individually that they know, that are in heaven, who are come to the outskirts of heaven in order to invite them, kind of an in-between ground, to invite them into heaven. Almost all of them refuse. And they refuse... um, because in every single case, they want to hold on to something that they can't take with them into heaven. And they'd rather live in that isolated kind of existence with the thing that they have, that they're holding on to, rather than to be able to let go of that, to just let go of that and, and enter into heaven. Now, these are, these are things that are dear to them, and sometimes they're good things, sometimes they're not such good things, um, but they are destructive because of the way they want to hold on to them. So the narrator is describing conversations that he hears and actions. And he watches one guy as he's going and trying to steal gold. <laughs> and, uh, and it's just you know, another person who has their shame and just keeps hiding and won't even let the person that loves him kind of talk to them because of their shame. So it's actions and conversations. One is a conversation between a guy who was a foreman uh, back in, in before he died and one of his employees. The employee is in heaven, the foreman is in hell. And the employee comes up and he's filled with joy and, and wants to invite his former foreman into heaven, but the foreman won't have anything to do with it. He says, you're a murderer, what are you talking about? And he says, yeah, yep, I did murder so-and-so, he's in heaven as well, you get to spend time with him as well, come, you know. Uh, but uh, yeah, when, when after the murder and the prison time, facing execution, all of that, it changed me. And um, I recognized, uh, I was humbled by all of that. Well, the guy won't have anything to do with it. He says, I want my rights. I want my rights. I, will not go, I won't go to a place that does that, that, that just lets you in. I'm a good person, and you're not a good person. And his, his employee, with love, says, uh, you actually weren't a good person. Nobody liked working for you. You were terrible to work for. Your family, uh, they, they suffered under your anger and, and, and life was not good for them. And he goes, mind your own business. I want my rights. I want nothing to do with it. And he turns around and he goes. Well, it's conversation after conversation like that that happens. And people will not let go of their addiction. They won't let go of an obsessive love that they have, a person that they love, that they love obsessively. Uh, in their lives above everything else. One, one example is um, when someone's talking to the narrator and says the problem with her is her obsessive love for her daughter or son who had died is that she would drag her son down to hell with her to take care of her personal need. Um, so there's obsessive love that people are holding on to. There are possessions that they're holding on to, ideas about God that they're holding on to, and they will not let them go. Not everyone wants to receive grace. Not everyone wants to come before God 
even if they're convinced that God is God and what he's saying is true, not everyone wants to let go of whatever it is that, that has its grip on us. By the way, the way of grace and generosity is the way of freedom and peace. It's the way of freedom and peace. Well, those of you who've taken Financial Peace University, we've got it coming up in a couple of weeks now. That's one of its, uh, that's one of its themes. And many of you uh, have, you know, tell stories about what happened by going through Financial Peace University. And many of you, without going through Financial Peace University, have experienced what happens when grace and generosity really gets hold of you. And you start applying the things, for instance, that Financial Peace University uh, teaches, and you start applying it to your life, and you start discovering that peace uh, that comes um, from that, as well as joy and a lot of other things. So the question is, will we allow God to challenge our ideas, to contradict our ideas about money, about anything? Um, will we allow him to challenge us, question our ideas, our own rights, and receive uh, his grace that he demonstrated through Jesus uh, in our lives. So the second subject that we can't cover without it contradicting a lot of our own ideas is the subject of God's judgment. So in Acts 4, we have this positive example of Barnabas, but now we're going to be given a negative example followed by swift judgment. Uh, it, it says at the end of the passage that it had a chilling effect on everyone who heard about it. It has a chilling effect even as you read it and you think about it. So we pick up in verse 1 of Acts chapter 5. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property, like Barnabas. With his wife, full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. And Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land. Didn't it belong to you before you sold it? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, the problem isn't that he sold it and brought only part of it. The problem is that he sold it, brought part of it, and made everyone think that he was giving all of it. That's the problem. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at, her feet, at his feet and died. Then the young men came in, and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, uh, definitely. <laughs> uh, money, God's judgment, this is not a Stepford God. Uh, 
not a God who just goes along with us. Now, technically, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira, as I said, is lying to God. But um, there's more going on here than that. Why do they lie to God? There's probably several things, just a couple to consider. One of them is pretense and hypocrisy. So they obviously want people to think that they are something that they are not. They're trying to portray themselves as something that they are not. So uh, because we don't give in this kind of way, you know, we bring things to the apostles' feet, uh, you know, usually in churches only like one or two people may know what you even give. Um, this scene would play out differently if it were to happen today. You know, Peter would maybe call uh, uh, Sapphira in and say, is the life that you and your husband portray on Instagram and Facebook really the whole story? And she would say yes, and she would die. <laughs> right? So pretense, you know what I mean. You know, uh, uh, pretense, hypocrisy, trying to be something uh, that you're not. So what's the big idea? You know what I mean? What's the big deal about this? Well, how many hurting, struggling people live a good part of their life in shame and, and defeat because they feel everybody else has it together or almost everybody else has it together and I must be the only person who really is as bad as I am. I mean, how much damage is done by that kind of constant portrayal of ourselves as better than we actually are? Now, we're all victims of pretense and hypocrisy. Every single one of us suffers from it. Meaning other people have done that to us and made us feel small. But we're also perpetrators. It's just like sin. There's two sides to it. We are victims of sin and at the same time, we are perpetrators of sin. Another question is, how much damage has been done to the mission of Christ through pretense and hypocrisy? I mean, what do people say that, you know, if they find out you're a Christian and you, you you have a conversation and maybe you ask them if they're interested in becoming Christians, they say, no, 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 Just, you know, it's all a bunch of hypocrisy, it's not, it's not real stuff. How much damage has been done to the mission of Christ? There's a lot at stake here, there's a lot at stake. Um, there's also behind this, obviously, greed. Because if all they wanted to do was portray themselves in a certain way and be applauded by people, they could have given the whole thing, but they didn't, they kept part of it back. And so there's greed involved here. And there's all kinds of questions we can ask about greed, but I'll just, I'll just go for the, the long-term one. How much has greed hurt the cause of Christ in the world? How much has greed among believers, among us, hurt the cause of Christ in the world? But there's still a big question. And uh, the big question is this, why, why this swift judgment? I mean, Peter doesn't even give them a chance to repent Peter had that opportunity after he sinned. It's like, it's like a swift judgment. They die right there for, for lying to the Holy Spirit. Uh, I don't know the answer to this question. Uh, but I, wanna, I just want to talk about a few things as we try to get our heads and hearts around a passage like this because the, the greatest damage is not so much to our heads. The greatest damage is to our hearts. Um, let, me just, let me just give you a few things to think about. So one of them is that uh, in reality, this kind of swift, swift judgment on God's people is a rare occurrence in the Bible. Some people think this kind of thing happens all the time all over the Bible. 
if you can think of one or two others, that's about, that's about it. There's maybe more than two. There's maybe four or five cases like this. Um, so it's not something that's happening all the time. It doesn't happen in the rest of the book of Acts. All right. Um, it's alluded to by the Apostle Paul, but just like this kind of swift judgment uh, is, is a rare occurrence in the Bible and in history as far as we know. Uh, secondly, the idea of to whom much is given, much is expected, seems to be at work here. Might be at work here. Okay, again, I can't give you the answer. I don't know, but it might be at work here. When something like this happens in the Old Testament, in almost every case, every case that I can th- think of except maybe one, It's a time of transition among the people of God, a time when in that transition God has displayed his presence and his power in incredible ways. Um, God is very, very active. The people get to see things that really, um, again, we have this idea that in the Old Testament, like miracles abound everywhere, left and right. God is showing up in clouds and fire and all this kind of stuff. The vast majority of Old Testament ministry, that is not happening. And so, um, but when those kinds of times are happening, where God is displaying himself in that kind of a way, and people, I mean, like Ananias and Sapphira, this is one of those major transition times. They are seeing what the apostles are doing. They are seeing the the healings that are taking place, the exorcisms. They're seeing people like Peter, who just a few weeks before this had, had denied Jesus, and everybody knows it had denied Jesus, is now standing up to the same people, boldly standing up and preaching to the same people who, who handed Jesus over to be crucified. Crucifixion is a horrible death. And yet he is speaking in the same way that could get him crucified, that could get him in trouble, but he is bold. Ananias and Sapphira have seen all of this. They've seen signs and wonders that most of us will never see, into, or certainly to, to the extent that they've been able to see. To whom much is given, much is expected, possibly. Um, here's another thing that's going on here um, that may play into this. This swift judgment sends a powerful message. And it's a powerful message that if it's heeded can save a lot of tragedy for a lot of people. The kind of tragedy that comes through greed. The kind of personal tragedy that comes through pretense and hypocrisy. Um, It's the kind of thing that if heeded can keep Christ's mission on track and his mission is more important than Ananias and Sapphira. So if you're reading um, Luke's two volumes, it's not that many chapters before here when you get to this point, if you were just reading through it. It's not that many chapters before this one that Judas betrays Jesus. Why does he betray Jesus? Well, there's been all kinds of modern attempts to make Judas into a noble zealot who is disappointed in Jesus. Excuse me a second. (coughs) But the text tells us why. He did it for money. If he was a noble zealot, he wouldn't have received the money. He did it for money. John, Apostle John, tells us that that wasn't the first time he did things for money. He was the treasurer for the disciples in Jesus. And he was embezzling all along in their ministry. Uh, so when we get to this point, it's, it's kind of like, like God putting a, a stamp of, okay, I'm going to tell you one more time. Things don't end well when you love money. Things don't end well when you put money ahead of your Savior, 
You put money ahead of the community. You put money ahead of your family. Things don't end well. And then, this is the last thing that I'm going to say about this, and it is that this is, in many ways, a preview of what is to come, of the new creation. Now, what I'm going to share with you, and it's going to take me about two or three minutes to share with you, is something that's going to be very difficult. If you, if you don't have a sense of where the story of God, kind of how it begins with creation and ends with new creation and what that means, kind of how God brings that about, if you don't have a sense of that, if you haven't taken our story of God experience here, which I, I, I hope you will, if you don't have a good sense of that especially, um, uh, if you don't have a sense of that, it's going to be maybe too much information right now. But here's a review for those of you who do, and, and maybe you'll, you'll pick it up. Maybe you're quicker than I am, because I would have trouble. All right, so here we go. All the miracles, the healings, the exorcisms in the Gospels are portrayed. The, the perspective that is communicated with all of these, this isn't the whole picture, this is the primary message. Jesus is saying, I have brought the kingdom to earth. It has broken in. This is what happens when God's kingdom breaks in to our hellish earth. You see healing. You see people being raised from the dead. Uh, you see Satan being vanquished. This is what you see when God's kingdom uh, breaks through. But it is a preview because God's kingdom is not going to come in fullness until Jesus' second coming at the end of the story. Well, it's not the end of the story, it's the beginning of a new story, but it's the end of, of, of the Bible pointing to the rest of the story. There's going to be a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. And in that new creation, there is not going to be any more sickness, and there is not going to be any more death, and there's not, not going to be any more evil. It's going to be eliminated. That's that's the story. So when we see, when we see miracles, it is flashes of the future. It's previews. All of it is. Um, it's the only way, it, it is what the Gospels communicate. It's what Jesus communicates about what he does. He isn't saying this is how it can be for everybody if you'll just believe enough. No. This is a preview of what's to come. So, um, when the new heaven and the new earth comes, it's not going to be some floating in the sky reality. It's described as something that's going to happen here on earth, a new earth and a new heaven. And, the, and it's going to be a merging of heaven and earth. It's why we pray, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're looking to that day. Jesus says, look forward to that day when that happens. And in the meantime, let's live in, in that way uh, by following Jesus. Now, here's the bad news. The earth, we've created hell. There's nothing in the Bible that says God created hell. He didn't. He created the heavens and the earth. We create hell. And for a new earth, without all those bad things, you've got to get the hell that we've created out of the earth. You have to. It can't, it can't abide. It can't, it can't be here. You can't have it both ways. So how... Do we not, how do we get to stay in the new heaven and the new earth? Well, the Bible says through grace. That's what, 
part of what grace is about. It's not just about you going to heaven. It's about being able to stand before God, being able to be part of this new heaven and the earth. God has begun a work in us that the Apostle Paul, for example, says he will complete on the day of Christ. He's going to complete the transformation that needs to happen to us. And so um, his righteousness that we right now have credited to us is going to be given to us completely because we're going to be transformed. So if you really understand the story that God is weaving, you really understand the purpose of the miracles. You can't, you can't really, not logically, you can't love the miracles and not have judgment. It's a package deal. They go together. They have to go together if God is going to be loving and perfectly just. If God is going to rid this world. It's a package deal. We can't have one without the other. And um, unfortunately, part of that is we, by God's grace, get to experience, um, get to experience God's new heaven and new earth. Now, I just want to end with a story. It's from Karl Barth. He, um, Karl Barth's one of the most prolific writers of the 20th century, um, probably prolific writers, period, but definitely the most prolific theologian of the 20th century, German theologian. And uh, he was also um, uh, one of the greatest theologians, uh, certainly one of the greatest minds uh, to, to look at theology. And he tells a story, it's a, he retells a Swiss legend, and he t- retells it and then drives home a point about what grace is about. So uh, it's a story about a, a rider on a horse who crosses this big lake of thin ice and doesn't realize he's on a lake because of the snow. And so he gets to his destination. When he gets to his destination, they say, where, where did you just come from? And he points across the lake and they tell him, it's a longer story, but they tell him, you know, what, what he just, how close he came to dying and he actually breaks down like, you know, all of a sudden it, the reality of what could have happened hits him and he, and he breaks down. And it wasn't until he got to the other side and was told of what he had just experienced, that he could truly experience the, the, the terror of what had happened. So Bart says this is pretty much the same as what happens to us when we are finally at the destination of the cross, where we come before the cross of Christ, Jesus dying for our sins and being offered his death instead of our death, him dying for our sins and us receiving that by faith not by anything that we've done. He says that's, that's what happens to us. Because what happens is, if we come face to face with the cross and we see what Jesus did for us, we have to look back and go, things must have been much worse than I had ever imagined. That it took this for God to save me. It took this. Paul says one time in one of his writings in Galatians, he says, if I'm going to paraphrase it here, but if you can be made right with God by just being good, he says, by keeping the law, then Christ died for nothing. But it was necessary that Christ died. So when we come face to face with the cross and we see that this is what, this is the extent I got, we look back at our lives and we go, I was on thin ice. I was almost lost forever. And then he writes this. He says, look at Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you know for whose sake he is hanging there? For our sake. 
because of our sin, sharing our captivity, burdened with our suffering. He nails our life to the cross. This is how God had to deal with us. From this darkness, he has saved us. Can I have the next screen? He who is not shattered after hearing this news may not have grasped the word of God by grace. You have been saved. Let's pray.